In the first year of Belshazzar, king of Babylon, Daniel saw a dream and visions of his head as he lay in his bed. Then he wrote down the dream and told the sum of the matter. Daniel declared, I saw in my vision by night, and behold, the four winds of heaven were stirring up the great sea, and four great beasts came up out of the sea, different from one another. The first was like a lion and had eagle's wings. Then as I looked, its wings were plucked off, and it was lifted up from the ground and made to stand on two feet like a man, and the mind of a man was given to it. And behold, another beast, a second one, like a bear. It was raised up on one side. It had three ribs in its mouth between its teeth, and it was told, Arise, devour much flesh. After this I looked, and behold, another like a leopard, with four wings of a bird on its back. And the beast had four heads, and dominion was given to it. After this I saw in the night visions, and behold, a fourth beast, terrifying and dreadful and exceedingly strong. It had great iron teeth. It devoured and broke in pieces and stamped what was left with its feet. It was different from all the beasts that were before it, and it had ten horns. I considered the horns, and behold, there came up among them another horn, a little one, before which three of the first horns were plucked up by the roots. And behold, in this horn were eyes like the eyes of a man, and a mouth speaking great things. The word of the Lord. All right, since that passage is self-explanatory, let's just close in prayer. Before we jump back into this passage um, and our series through Daniel, I actually want to show you something different real quick. I want to show you one of the most controversial photos of the last two decades, okay? Um, In fact, as soon as the photographer took this picture, um, his name is Thomas Hopker, he captured this shot. He knew it was going to cause a stir, so much so that he waited a full four years before even releasing it to the public. When he did, a New York Times columnist took those in the picture to task. An article on Slate.com responded, and then they started to chime in themselves. They wrote in and said, well, no, this is actually what's going on. As more and more people joined the conversation, The Guardian called it the most controversial photo taken during this event. This picture caused an international conversation. Now, you look at that and you think, huh, what's so controversial about that, right? Isn't that just a shot of a few friends Uh, enjoying a sunny day in a park by the water? Well, yes, it is. But the truth is I haven't been totally honest with you so far. Everything I said was true. But um, this photo, it really is one of the most controversial in the last 20 years, but I've only shown you half the picture, okay? I've only shown you half the picture. To understand this picture, you need to see the top half of the story as well. Only having access to the bottom half um, doesn't give us enough perspective. It doesn't, uh, it, there's not enough truth to understand the story behind it. Until we see the whole picture, there will always be a disconnect between what we can see and what we know is true. All right, here's the whole thing. See, now it all makes sense. This, uh, this photographer was in a park opposite Manhattan on um, September 11th, 2001. And when the Twin Towers were struck by hijacked planes, he saw this group of people gathered in the park and snapped this photo. 
Four years later, when he released it, the five people were accused of being callous, cold, indifferent. How can you sit in the sun and enjoy some time with your friends while the city behind you, behind you burns, right? But as we learn more about what was going on, it turns out these folks didn't even know each other. They had all kind of come to that spot to look and to see what was going on, to try to try to learn what was happening, and honestly, just to be with other people in the midst of tragedy, right? Um, so there's far more going on here than we could initially know. It's a fascinating photo with a fascinating history. But here's where I think it can be so instructive for us this morning as we jump back into Daniel. The same way that it's impossible to make sense of the um, bottom half of the story without seeing the whole picture, it's just as impossible to make any sense of our lives unless we see the full picture of what God is up to in the world. You see, the part of our lives that's easiest to notice at first pass is the bottom half of our, of our story, so to speak. It's what we can see and touch and hear and smell and taste. It's what science can prove. It's what history can show. It's the tasks that make up our day, right? Changing diapers, building spreadsheets, uh, raising kids, going to school, sending emails. There are so many emails in the bottom half of our story, okay? So many. And this is what so many people in our world assume is the full picture, that it just ends here, that life is short and then it's over. Minimize suffering as much as you're able to. Enjoy the gifts you've been given. Try to do some good. And then that's the end of the story. But here's the problem. Just like looking at the bottom half of this 9-11 photo, um, just seeing the bottom half can't begin to account for the global conversation that surrounds the controversy of that picture. In the same way, the visible, earthly, scientifically proven part of our story can't begin to account for the meaning and the hope and the grief that is infused in our experience in this world. In other words, in other words, if this life really is all there is, if humans really are only an accidental collocation of atoms, right, as one atheist physics professor put it, under the pressure of evolutionary progress over the course of a few million years, if, if that's the end of our story, why do we fear and grieve death? Why, why do we hope for a deeper love? I mean, why do we long for beauty? Why do our hearts cry out for justice and goodness in a broken world? Where did we even get the idea that the world was broken in the first place? If the bottom half of the story really is all there is, as C.S. Lewis famously put it, we should never have figured out there even is such a thing as right and wrong. Here's my point. Just like that photo, the conversation and the debate and the controversy and the search for meaning that surrounds our lives is way too big for just the bottom half of the story. There must be another part of the picture. There must be something greater that tells the full story and the full picture. What might the top half of our story be that can make sense of all that we experience in the world? Okay? We're right in the middle of a sermon series of the book of Daniel. And as we've said over and over, Daniel's story is our story. 
okay? Uh, He was a man who God brought to a new place. It was a pluralistic place. It was a secular place. It was a diverse place. It was filled with pressure to conform to the religious norms of the time. Daniel was called not only to follow God faithfully in this place, um, in a very hard place to follow God, but he was also called to be a blessing and a gift to those around him, to actually bring peace and shalom to the city where God placed him, to pray for it, to invest in its good, to work for its governments, to you know, make its schools better, to invest in its social programs. He was called to be a blessing to the neighborhood he was in while he was in exile, and so are we. The stories from exile are stories that encourage us and inspire us and challenge us and convict us. Daniel 1 through 6 gives the account of God's people living through this time, these 70 years that they spent in Babylon. And it's an account of God's people fighting to believe the promises of God are true while they live on the ground. They're they're historical accounts, stories of faith on the ground. But starting this week, we actually enter into a new part in the book of Daniel, the second half. And chapters 7 through 12 is another kind of literature altogether. So we've 1 through 6 is history, and now we're moving into something a little bit different. And here, God gives Daniel this series of dreams and visions, and Daniel records them for the good of his people then and for the good of God's people now. And all who read them... What this is meant to be is the full picture of what God is doing in the world. So this type of literature in the Bible is called apocalyptic. Things are going to get crazy, okay? Um, There there are other parts in the Bible written in this genre, most notably uh, the book of Revelation at the end of the Bible is almost entirely written in this genre of apocalyptic. It's strange and mysterious to us, but it's actually a pretty common genre back in the day. It's like you could go to the local bookstore at Barnes and Noble in the ancient world and, you know, pick up a history book or pick up the latest apocalyptic visions. You know, it's just kind of like out there in the world. It was a pretty normal thing. Um, But the point of apocalyptic literature is not necessarily to give us a coded roadmap for the future. Um, If the main question that we have as we finish this chapter of Daniel 7 is which, you know, medieval pope does the eighth horn on the beast represent? Or like, where does the U.S.-China trade war feature in this particular chapter? We're asking the wrong kinds of questions, okay? Uh, Sinclair Ferguson, a pastor, put it this way. If the Lord had simply wanted Daniel to know the facts of history ahead of time, why did he give him such a complex curious, multicolored, sense-appealing revelation. And to ask the question is to answer it. God not only revealed facts about history in advance, he revealed himself to Daniel, impressing on him something of his own awesome and glorious purposes. Miss this, and we miss almost everything. See, in other words, the visions that we're going to read through, the visions we just heard read, wild beasts coming out of the sea. We'll get to that in a minute. Um, The the point of this is that these are intended to be multi-sensory encounters with God. This is supposed to open, not not only give us information, but actually open our imagination to what God is doing in the world, to give us the full picture of his work. Because he cares about the information that we know and believe. But even more than that, He wants to cultivate our imagination, and he wants to transform our lives. He cares about what our hearts love 
And this is a key part of shaping our hearts. So he communicates to us on all these different levels. So at least one thing I hope that you see this morning is that even though these parts of the Bible are a little mysterious, a little out there, a little hard to grasp, with a little work, they're not inaccessible, and they're very, very relevant to us still. Okay? Remember, Daniel is a survival manual for Christians living in exile. This is a field guide for those of us trying to follow Jesus in a world that's spiritually distracted, secular, there's pressures to conform in all these different ways, and he devotes 50% of this field manual to wacky apocalyptic visions on purpose. Why? Because this is what we need. We need to see the full picture of what God is doing in the world, the whole story. We need God to pull back the curtain and show us his blazing, searing image of himself at work in our world just behind the curtain of what we can see and taste and feel and touch and smell. Right? I mean, he's right here. He's very present. We just, and we can almost sense his presence right around the corner. He's actively engaged in every part of our life. We need to know God is near. We need the top half of our story revealed. But here's the beautiful thing about Daniel 7. Unlike that 9-11 photo that seemed serene at first, but the top half of the story was filled with violence and chaos and death, Daniel 7 is the exact opposite of that. The bigger the picture gets of what God is doing in the world, the better the picture gets of what God is doing in the world. And we need a bigger and bigger vision of how he's at work in our lives. So I know that was a long intro, but, you know, this is a weird part of the Bible, so we kind of got to set the stage. Uh, But for the rest of our time this morning, let's just ask this. If God is pulling the curtain back to show us the full picture of what he's up to, what does he show? What's the bottom half according to God And what's the top half, according to God? Okay? So the bottom half first. Verse 2, Daniel's dream begins with the churning sea. We just heard that. The sea in the Bible almost always represents um, chaos and judgment and evil. In Exodus, God held back the destructive waters and he let his people pass through as he rescued them out of slavery. And then when he removed his hand, the waters of judgment poured back over Israel's enemies. When Jonah disobeyed God and ran away, what did he run into the first thing? A, sea, a storm at, this, at sea, right? When the disciples were in a little boat and they were terrified for their lives, they were out on the sea in a storm. Jesus was taking a nap in the back. And the sea there represent all the fear and the uncontrollable forces in the world. In other words, in the ancient world, the sea is not a place that you went on vacation. The sea is where you drowned, okay? The sea is where all the scary stuff is and lives and comes from. And out of the sea crawl four beasts in this vision. Um, Each is more heinous and ugly and monstrous than the last. So first we see a lion, but it's not just a lion. It's a lion with wings. It's a lion that can pursue its prey on land and in the air. It's terrifying. Next we see a bear still gnawing on its last meal with three ribs hanging out of its mouth while it's commanded to go find its next one, to consume, to destroy. Third, a leopard with four wings and four heads. It's, it's getting more unnatural. It's getting more grotesque as we go. And fourth, is the scariest of all, 
Daniel says something came out of the sea that was terrible, dreadful, exceedingly strong. It has great iron teeth. It devours, it breaks, it stamps. It has horns with eyes and a mouth. We learn later in the chapter that mouth was cursing God. It was blaspheming God. What could all this mean? Things got real weird real fast, didn't they? Uh, just last chapter, you know, where, you know, things were miraculous and all that. Like Daniel survived the lion's den, but at least we knew what was going on. What is going on now? Well, we get some help. In the second half of the chapter, God sends Daniel an interpreter, thank you, who tells him that these four beasts are four kings. They're four nations that will reign with power and destruction. And the next four empires, from Daniel's perspective, would have been Babylon, Persia, Greece, and Rome. So Daniel's vision is basically a warning for God's people in his day about what they would experience over the coming years as a worshiping community. The powers of the day would be violent. They'd be unjust. They'd rule with a growing vulgarity and evil. And history bears this out, doesn't it? Human history, we could say, is beastly. We, we have a poor track record in how we treat each other. Um, but what's interesting is this exact same imagery is used actually at the very end of the Bible in Revelation to show the same chaotic sort of anti-God kingdoms that will exist even after Rome. So Daniel gets a preview of the next four kingdoms, but then Revelation tells us in chapter 13, I saw a beast rising out of the sea with ten horns and seven heads with ten diadems on its horns and blasphemous blasphemous names on its heads. It's almost directly quoting Daniel 7, and it's saying it's another warning to Christians moving into the future. This is what you should expect, too. So I think this carries a warning that will always be true for God's people. As long as we live on earth, kingdoms will replace kingdoms, but the darkness, the fear, the the beastliness of human history will always be with us. Even today, we know this is true. There are powers at work in this world that are awful and are dark. I mean, three weeks ago today on Easter morning, and I'm going to cry again now, um, 250 of our brothers and sisters in Sri Lanka were killed while they worshipped on Easter morning. They were in a room just like ours, celebrating the resurrection, just like we were. They were in a different zip code, and they were killed for it, right? I mean, this is awful. This is dark. This is evil. Closer to home, even in our beautiful valley, uh, with one of the highest life expectancy rates in the nation, if not the world. Uh, We're also in the top 5% in the nation of substance abuse per capita, of addiction per capita, of suicide rates per capita. What are the powers that are at work here in this place that are so ugly and destructive to human life? I don't know. I don't know what those forces are that are doing this to us here But part of what the imagery in Daniel 7 is telling us is wherever you go in the world, even the beautiful Roaring Fork Valley, the powers that crawl out of the sea are present. That that we, we are not immune from the beastliness of this world. And the truth is, these beastly creatures, they're out there in the world, but they're also in here in our hearts, at work, in us as well. I mean, the sin in us, this rebellion that we're all born into against the good and loving God that created us, 
Um, it's a force that's trying to destroy us from the inside. I mean, it feeds our selfishness, and then it starves our love for others. The, the sin in us, it, it tells us lies like we, we won't be loved or we can't be fixed. Um, it is, it's trying to destroy us. Both inside and outside, we live in a dangerous world. Um, Annie Dillard, in her Pulitzer Prize-winning book, Pilgrim at Tinker Creek, calls our world the place where the twin oceans of beauty and horror meet. And that's what God is describing in this vision in Daniel 7. We live in a world that is filled with awe. It's filled with beauty. It's filled with goodness. And at the same time, it's brutal and it's dark. How do we account for all of this? How do we account for the bottom half of our story? I mean, this isn't news to anyone who has their eyes and their hearts open to the brokenness of the world. We all know this is true, but how do we hold all this together? How do we hear the one voice on the one side that's saying, um, your life should have meaning and hope and purpose beyond yourself, and then the other voice is filled with grief and sadness and shame and darkness. I mean, we are not on our own able to reconcile these twin oceans of beauty and horror. But into this too small view of our own story and of the world comes the full picture, okay? And uh, it's like throwing the doors open of a dar- in a dark, stuffy room and letting the bright spring light come in and revive it. Uh, directly contrasting the chaos and the violence of the beasts of our world comes a vision of the throne room of God. I mean, it's not even, there's not even a transition. Like the beast stuff all ends in verse 8, and then in verse 9, we are, we're brought directly up into God's throne room. And it's beautiful, but it's sizzling with power and energy. Look at verse 9. I looked, thrones were placed, and the Ancient of Days took his seat. His clothing was white as snow. The hair on his head was like pure wool. His throne was fiery flames. Its wheels were burning fire. A stream of fire issued and came out from before him. A thousand thousands served him. Ten thousand times ten thousand stood before him. The court sat in judgment, and the books were opened. I looked then because of the sound of the great words that the horn was speaking. And as I looked, the beast was killed, its body destroyed and given over to be burned with fire. As for the rest of the beasts, their dominions were taken away, but their lives were prolonged for a season and a time. In other words, the top half of our story shows this pure, blazing, good, loving, powerful reign of God that he is in control of all things. The one beast was killed, the rest, their dominion was taken away. Yeah, they're still around for a little while, but God, God's good reign sits over everything that happens in this world. He, he's here, he's called the Ancient of Days. His, his hair is white like wool. It means he, he's a judge who has the wisdom to sort out right from wrong, the purity to choose right every time, and then the power to enforce it. This is a vision of the one who was in charge before every power and darkness over crawled out of the sea. And this is the God who will be in charge long after they've been judged for what they've done. Notice God is seated. He's never taken by surprise. Uh, He's never in a panic. He reigns. He's in control of all things, even 
the beasts are under his control. He gives him just enough rope to wander around before he hangs him. And he opens the book of judgment, and he will bring perfect justice to our broken world. He will fix everything that's ever gone wrong. He will make tragedy and brokenness and hurt come untrue. But we need to pause here for just a second and acknowledge something. We have a, a love-hate relationship with this vision of God, don't we? The, the God who judges. Um, on the one hand, we find the judgment of God uh, distasteful, kind of unloving. We don't want to worship a judging God, a, a wrathful God. Um, on the other hand, we're frustrated that he's taking so dang long to come back and take care of business, aren't we? So we long for his justice to arrive, and we don't long for his justice to arrive all at the same time. Isn't that fascinating? Um, God, why is that? I think it's a couple reasons. God has built into us a longing for his justice to reign in the world, for for wrongs to be exposed, uh, a longing that comes from God's character. We're made in his image, and if you long for justice and work for it and are passionate about it, you are representing God's heart to the world. I mean, if you pray that he would reveal the world's suffering, bring comfort to the dying, bring hope to the depressed, bring life-giving relationships to the lonely, you are longing for God's justice to come. Come, Lord Jesus. But at the same time, we all sort of intuitively know that God's justice is not just pointed at the evil out there in the world, right? But that we are actually contributing to and part of the darkness that is here. And, And that when his judgment and his justice comes, we're under the microscope just as much as everybody else, that we're not safe from it. We know the evil in the world needs to be exposed, but we know that includes us too. We want his justice, and we don't want his justice all at the same time. See, the bottom part of our story, it's largely beastly. Um, And God's top half is clean and good and pure, but how are the two ever going to connect? I mean, how can we, who are part of the darkness, ever connect with the blazing light of God's goodness and love? And this is actually, whether you know it or not, the most pressing and important question in your life. How how can we reconnect with the Ancient of Days who reigns from his throne room right now and has the book of his justice open to come and fix the world? How do we get on the right side of that story. And here's why the last two verses that we're going to look at this morning in Daniel 7 are two of the most important verses in your Bible. It's kind of a strange thing to say, this strange apocalyptic vision, but, but many theologians have called this chapter, Daniel 7, um, maybe the most important chapter in the entire Old Testament. They've called it the entire story of Christianity in miniature. And these two verses um, are the key to this strange peak behind the curtain of reality, and they are the key to your life and my life making any sense and having any hope. Daniel 7, 13 and 14. I saw in the night vision, and behold, with the clouds of heaven there came one like a son of man. And he came to the Ancient of Days and was presented before him. And to him was given dominion and glory and a kingdom that all people, nation and languages, should serve him His dominion is an everlasting dominion, which shall not pass away, 
and his kingdom, one that shall not be destroyed. In the throne room of God himself, there's someone else who gets to belong there, okay? He's called one like a son of man, which is the way the Bible talks about normal old humans like you and me. But his characteristics and his authority are anything but human. He's from the clouds. He's presented with God himself in the throne room as if he belongs there, as if he reigns with God. He's given dominion and glory and a kingdom. All people serve him. He has an eternal reign. He's never destroyed. There is another person in God's throne room with God who is one like us, who is himself also God and reigns with all the authority of God. And here's what that means for us. This is why this is the key to history and the key to your life and my life making any sense. Humanity is not stuck on the wrong side of the story from God. Humanity is not stuck, separated from God forever. There is one man, there's one person, like the Son of Man, who belongs in the throne room with God. And he has the right to be there. When Jesus came to earth to accomplish his salvation mission, you know what he called himself? He called himself the Son of Man. He was directly quoting Daniel 7. He was claiming this role. Other people called him Lord. Other people called him King. Other people called him Messiah and Savior. All those things are true. But when he spoke about himself, 99 times out of 100, he said, I'm the Son of Man. I am the one in Daniel who has the right to be with God because I am God, but has come here and lived with humanity as a person, as a man, experienced all that we've ever experienced, and then went to death on our behalf to take care of the beasts that will always reign in our world. He went to war for us. He was our hero. He defeated the beasts. And then when he rose again from death, he paved the way and ushered us back into the throne room of God. See, it's only through Jesus that these two halves of our story ever have the hope of, of reconnecting. He, he can stitch back together the whole story that gives meaning and hope to our life that was torn apart because of our sin. I wish I could do this passage more justice. It is so rich and so good. There's so much here. Um, if you guys are good for another hour, I could go. No? You got stuff to do? Brunch? Okay, so let's land this plane this way. Um, why does this matter? So what? Like, um, crazy apocalyptic visions, but, but so what? Here's how one pastor I read put it. If the Ancient of Days is my judge, and the Son of Man is my Savior, then let the world do its worst. The world has no power to hurt me, and I know that after the world has gone, done its worst, God will welcome me into his very best. This is why these strange apocalyptic visions are crucial for us to keep in view as we try to make our way in the world following Jesus in this place. Whatever the picture of your life looks like right now, the the bottom half of your story, whether it, it, it feels like you're rising or falling, whether it's rosy or dark, whether you're energized right now or exhausted right now, if you're sad, if you're lonely, if you're hopeless, if you don't know what to do next and you feel stuck, no matter what beast you feel like you're fighting right now, this is only half your story. It's only the bottom half of your story. Here's the whole picture. Ready? This is your story. There is a God in heaven who loves you, and he is so good. He is kind. He is powerful. 
He reigns over every situation in your life. Nothing is an accident. Everything is on purpose. Nothing is out of his hands. He will fix everything that breaks. He will restore everything that you've ever lost and wish you had back. He will heal everything that's broken. And the way he invites you back home into his family is by coming into our broken world himself and experiencing everything that we will ever experience as we fight the beasts of this world. And not only that, but then he, he trades us. He, he takes our darkness and our brokenness and our sin, and he hands us a key to the throne room of heaven. And he says, open door policy. Come anytime you want. Stay as long as you want. I am with you, present with you in your life, working for you, and we are reunited again. You are in me, and I am in you, and you will be ushered home to heaven forever. The bigger the picture gets of what God is doing in the world, the better the picture gets. And we need the whole story if we're ever going to make it in this world. That's the whole story. Believe it, because we need it. Let's pray. Jesus, thank you for um, claiming the role as the Son of Man. Thank you for being the one who bridges the gap between heaven and earth. Thank you for fighting our battles, defeating our enemies, saving us from our sin, and bringing us home to our good and loving Father, the Ancient of Days, the Wise One, the Powerful One. God, help usher us into your family. Help us trust all the promises that you've given us and you've achieved for us in the cross and the resurrection. Help us love you. Help us trust you. Grow grow the picture, the vision that we have of what our life is about. Give us the top half of our story over and over and over again. Put people in our lives that remind us how good you've been, how good you are, and how much you love us. We ask these things in your name. Amen.